How are you, Greg? I'm good, G. How are you doing? Oh, fantastic. Thanks so much for being with us. Sure. How have you been holding up, by the way, throughout this entire uh, stay-at-home order? Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's a different world, but I, you know, make, trying to make the most of it, uh, plugging away at a book and uh, listening to a lot of music, of course. So <laughs> keeps me sane. Yes, absolutely. So um, a lot of losses for uh, R&B uh, recently. Want to just go ahead and start with uh, Little Richard? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, what a tragedy that we've lost another one of the building blocks of rock and roll. I think of the original Hall of Fame class. He was one of the last people standing um, and certainly one of the guys who built uh, rock and roll. I think uh, a case can be made that Tutti Frutti, which he recorded in September of 55, was kind of the atom bomb <laughs> that set off the, <laughs> the whole rock and roll uh, era. Uh, you know, artists like Elvis Presley and Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry were all recording around that same time, but that song in particular had a huge impact. And I think of all the uh, progenitors of, of rock and roll, that was probably the most chaotic, wildest, completely unconventional pieces of music that uh, emerged in that initial burst of inspiration uh, from, uh, you know, this new generation of, uh, of music makers. And uh, so I think his influence was so widespread. I think the fact that he had an impact on, you know, James Brown, who early in his career was effectively a Little Richard imitator when Little Richard wouldn't go on the road or had was indisposed. Mm-hmm. Little Richard's band carried on without him and, you know, would have James Brown impersonating Little Richard up front. Uh, a guy by the name of Jimi Hendrix uh, was a guitar player in Little Richard's band. <laughs> wow. uh, Paul McCartney um, has cited numerous times that uh, Little Richard was one of his earliest inspirations. Um, and you can hear it in some of the harder-edged uh, uh, Beatles tracks that that scream that McCartney had was lifted from Little Richard. Uh, Bob Dylan uh, posted a, a beautiful uh, tweet uh, the other day, uh, paying tribute to Little Richard, saying that you know without him, I don't know where where I would have begun. It was kind of the starting point for 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 Dylan as as a music maker. So his influence is pretty profound and carries on uh, through the generations. Um, that's incredible. I did not know all of that history. If if someone's not familiar with uh, Little Richard or needs to get reacquainted, is there a particular album or particular songs that you would recommend that are quintessential? Well, there's numerous compilations out there uh, that are pretty good. Um, he was. Uh, I would I would focus on on the material that. Uh, is from his 50s era because that's when he was at his absolute best and really uh, a two-year period there uh 1955 to 1957 i mean there was good little richard stuff after that uh when he basically quit rock and roll in in in, in the late 50s to become a preacher and then returned to rock and roll and uh but really his bread and butter uh were the recordings made in that 1955 through 57 window and there are a number of compilations that uh, feature those tracks you know long tall sally and tutti frutti and lucille uh the original those original recordings still hold up they still sound absolutely insane and i mean that as a high compliment uh but you know something like here's little richard you know the you know the first album that he recorded um is, is a great starting point 
Well, he was also known to have a very tumultuous life. You mentioned that he quit music for a little while to become a preacher. And how did that affect his music? You know, he was, uh, you know, sexually fluid. Let's put it that okay. way. You know, um, he was he was gay. He was. Uh, bisexual, he was omnisexual. One time, he talked about himself in those terms, um, and he, he he was upfront about it. Here's a guy wearing uh, you know makeup, uh, wearing you know various forms of women's clothing on stage, uh, but clearly performing as a man. He said, "I'm I'm both the king and queen of rock and roll." Um, that was totally unheard of. Can you imagine a, a black man? In the 50s, out of the South, you know, mm-hmm. coming out like that in in full public view. And I think people were not so much shocked by it. They were eventually won over because he was just so damn entertaining. Mm-hmm. And um, even, even the, you know, the bigots, even the, you know, the people who would never associate with gay people uh, found him immensely entertaining. At the same time, there were people who didn't like what he was doing at all, but he just kept carrying on. So I think, you know, that was a defining feature of his uh, his rock and roll persona. At the same time, um, this whole pitched battle between good and evil in his life sort of emerged when he thought he saw a sign from God at a concert he was performing in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, it turned out to be the uh, the chemtrails of the Sputnik up in the sky. Um, <laughs> but he thought it was God talking to him, and he, he said, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit. And right on the spot, he basically you know, walked out and said, I'm done with rock and roll, and didn't return to it till for another five, ten years. But he, you know, he, and he's had sort of a checkered up-and-down career ever since. Uh, but, you know, the whole um, good and evil, devil and devil and God uh, sort of dichotomy was always there. He, uh, you know, he would play off of that, and it would give him fuel. And at the same time, he was the kind of guy that would be a minister. Like, for example, when Tom Petty got married um, in the late 90s, I think, or early 2000s, he was, he was the minister. He was the, uh, he was the man who got uh, Tom Petty hooked, you know, so it was kind of mm-hmm. like... <laughs> You know, he had he had these dual personas going on all the time, and I, I I think he was comfortable with it, more comfortable than a lot of people who were trying to make him out. Got it. Okay. Um, another great that was we lost recently was Betty Wright. If you can tell us uh, about her and her historical significance as well. Well, Betty Wright was a pioneer. Um, you know, she had a hit uh, as a teenager. Uh, started recording in the fifties and in, in sixty eight when she was fourteen years old. Uh, she released a debut album and uh, first uh, top 40 single, Girls Can't Do What the Guys Do. And then in the 70s, she hit really big with a song called Clean Up Woman. That is the song that uh, probably most people know her for. Uh, but it's you know easily one of the best-known songs that uh, anyone has ever recorded from that era. And really was uh, the fulcrum with the whole Miami sound, you know, the, which was an amalgam of different strains of rhythm music, you know, everything from uh, Caribbean beats to New Orleans uh, v- vibe, um, all sort of blending together in that Miami sound and kind of a precursor of disco, uh, but extremely danceable. And, uh, you know, in 76, then she, she won a Grammy for another big hit, Where's the Love, kind of really at the heart of the disco era. She's been sort of up and down uh, since then, but then experienced a revival because of so much of her music was being sampled uh, by other artists starting in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, um, people like Mary J. Blige, even Chance the Rapper recently, mm-hmm. um, have 
sampled her music and used it as part of uh, their songs. Um, she even um, was a vocal coach for Beyonce. So, wow. Uh, uh, Beyonce sampled uh, Girls Can't Do What Guys Do on that 2006 song, Upgrade You, that she had. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, she was, uh, Beyonce was beholden to uh, Betty Wright. And uh, one of those kind of under-the-radar careers, a lot of people think of her as a one-hit wonder, but when you really think about it, um, she was a presence uh, in the music world for six decades. Died, she was still pretty young, died when she was 66. So her entire life was really devoted to music, and, and she had a pretty big impact that a lot of people may not be aware of. Do you feel that, um, or did she feel that she was fully celebrated in her lifetime? You know, I I never, I never got the sense that she was about sour grapes and, gee, I should have been bigger. Um, I think she was um, very comfortable with where she was at and the influence she had. And I think the fact that all these, um, uh, you know, singers and rappers in subsequent decades paid homage to her and kept her music alive, you know, uh, you get licensing fees when people sample your records, right. you know, um, so it wasn't, wasn't so bad. Uh, and I think she was, uh, I think she got, got to smell the roses, you know, uh, on the way out. I mean, she was acknowledged and people saw her as a huge influence. And I think that was very satisfying to her. And uh, also, Andre Harrell, who was a uh, executive, a music executive that worked with uh, Sean Diddy Combs. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people associate Andre with, um, you know, uh, helping, you know, discover, quote-unquote, Sean Combs and turning him into Puff Daddy, you know. Mm -hmm. It was uh, one of those things where here's this kid, really eager, uh, Andre Harrell saw something some bit of genius in him, and he was he was right. But uh, Harrell also had a pretty uh, amazing career in his own right. He he had a rap group early in his career, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. They had a major hit in 1981 with Genius Rap, and then AMPM in '84. And uh, then, uh, after meeting Russell Simmons, the founder of Jeff. Def Jam Records. He went to work for Def Jam, and then within two years, he was the general manager of the of the company. And then, after a few years of working at Def Jam, he left and founded his own label, Uptown Records, which is really the crux of his uh, his uh, his legacy. Um, that's where he ended up signing uh, Puffy Combs, but also um, in '88 uh, recorded uh, Mary J. Blige. Um, and that was one of those, uh, you know. Obviously, Larry J. Blige was a huge, huge artist uh, that came up through that label system. Um, you know, he kept on stretching his uh, his parameters. I think uh, uh, a genre like New Jack Swing, the Bobby Brown uh, associated with Bobby Brown and artists like that, that sort of brought an element of sophistication to hip hop, or sort of brought a little bit more grit to. Um, R&B, depending on your perspective, was was pretty groundbreaking. And Harrell was at the ground floor of that as well in the late 80s with the kind of artists he was signing and the kind of records he was putting out. So he was a a visionary. And in the late 80s, uh, from the 80s into the early 90s, I don't think there was a more important uh, figure in um, black music. But I also think that he's been eclipsed since then in sort of the popular consciousness by, by Sean Combs. But Puffy owes everything to Andre. You know, Andre yeah. gave him the, opened the door for him. And, um, you know, the, I, I think these two between them dominated a lot of what uh, 
R&B and hip-hop became in the, in the next few decades. Well, Greg Cott, thank you so much for educating us. Um, I know that you're also working on a book, right? I am. Um, to be determined when it'll be put out, but I am working very hard at it. I don't want to uh, talk too much about it at this point. I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm superstitious about jinxing myself, <laughs> but uh, uh, I'd be glad to talk about it when and if it gets published. But I've I've written a bunch of books, and one of the uh, points that I wanted to sort of chase uh, when I left the Tribune was to give myself an opportunity to write another book. I, my last book was the Mavis Staples book, and I, I would be, was eager to, to do something else beyond that because that was such a satisfying mm-hmm. uh, piece of writing, and I just want to keep doing that. Surprised you're uh, still superstitious after such an illustrious career. You spent 40 years at uh, the Chicago Tribune before you retired, and I hear also that uh, another thing that's uh, after your own heart is your organization over the edge basketball. Yeah, I love, I've been coaching youth basketball for 20 years and, um, you know, we have a program now with about, uh, we, we train about 500 kids a year in this program, but unfortunately, uh, we're, uh, we're sidelined at the moment. Um, we can't, uh, right. uh there, we're, we're practicing social distancing by not having practices or games at the, at the current uh, time, but I hope, uh, at some point we'll get back together in the gym because it's one of the things I truly love doing most. Well, Greg, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you.